Hey, good morning, guys. Really good to see all of you here. Uh, love being together. Feels like good momentum, you know, coming back. I'm seeing some of you that I haven't seen in a long, long time. So uh, welcome. Super excited to talk to you today. Uh, so I became a Christian, uh, believed in Jesus for my salvation when I was 13 years old. And it was in a context where I, I didn't have a lot of mature Christians who were ahead of me, around me to kind of help me. And so shortly after I became a Christian, I met a guy at school who was a couple years ahead of me. His name was Randy. And uh, Randy was one of these guys. This is how we said it. Randy was on fire for the Lord. OK, I don't even know if people talk like that anymore, but that's how I characterize it. He was on fire for the Lord. He talked about Jesus a lot. And uh, Randy was the kind of guy who um, actually brought his Bible to school. And it wasn't just any Bible. It was a black leather bound King James Version, large print. OK, so leave nothing unturned there. And and Randy was the first guy I had ever met who underlined things in his Bible. I didn't know you could do that. I, I, it seems sort of sacrilegious to me, like stepping on the flag or something. I don't, I don't know. But sure enough, there it was. And when I listened to him and saw what he did and that, hey, things that are meaningful in scriptures, you can highlight and you can circle and you can draw lines and all that kind of stuff. I started underlining stuff in my Bible, too. So years passed and um, I was back home where I grew up and just casually mentioned to somebody that was a mutual acquaintance, hey, how's Randy doing? And they said, well, you know, um, he's not so much into Jesus anymore. And he's kind of been distracted by all kinds of things. You know, he, he's a good guy and all that, but Jesus is not the central figure in his life anymore. He, he's, he's drifted away from following Jesus. Now, now the truth is, uh, maybe you have Randy's in your life. Actually, because that story seems all too familiar now, to me anyway. People who start strong with Jesus... And, and they're faithful and they're excited and God seems to be using their lives and their examples and they love God and they pray and they know his word and those kinds of things. But they begin to trickle away in unbelief. They, they, they begin to search for something else. They begin to return to maybe a previous life or whatever it might be without the dedication that they once had to Jesus. And there are lots of different reasons why this happens, I guess. You know, maybe they're disillusioned or hurt. Maybe they're facing some kind of crisis in their lives. Maybe they feel like God let them down or, or that they're, they're not being honest with themselves if they sort of continue pursuing this life with Jesus. Whatever the circumstances, they've decided to distance themselves from Jesus. Do you know anyone like this? You may have lived this story. It's not uncommon, actually, for, for Christians who, of many years, to pursue Jesus and then curveballs and sideways things and challenges and hardships um, create an environment where we loosen our grip on Jesus. So last week we started a series that I'm very excited about. It's called High Alert. And what I'm doing for us in these five weeks is taking a look at the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. If you don't know it, uh, the book of Hebrews is structured around five warning passages. And we can learn a lot from these uh, warning passages. And I suggested uh, last week that Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are tempted to abandon their allegiance to Christ and return to the familiar and more comfortable routine of Jewish rules and practices. 
Now, while this book is written to Jewish Christians, by that I mean Christians who have come out of the Jewish faith and that they found Jesus to be Messiah. And now for whatever reason, probably trials or challenging things in their lives, they are tempted now to abandon their pursuit of Jesus, even though they're Christians and even though they're headed to heaven, and return to the familiar and to the easy. All of that sort of structured rules and regulations of the Jewish faith that had become so familiar to them in, in growing up. And so there are lots of parallels for us today. You're sitting here and you're going, well, I, I'm, uh, I wasn't raised Jewish and I'm not tempted to return to Jewish faith. But the parallels are all over the place, right? Because every single one of us, perhaps, has that nudge or that temptation to those of us that are Christians that having pursued Christ. Now we're going to, uh, it's not really holding what I want it to be, and now we're going to return to the familiar or to the easy. We discover, too, that these people, these Jewish Christians, are not in danger of losing their salvation. You know why? Because you can't. <laughs> That's a sermon in itself, but you just over and over again, we find in the New Testament that once you believe in Jesus, you're, you're in. Once you're in, you're in, okay? Jesus said it this way, he who believes in me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. As you study the scriptures, you begin to, to understand that the belief that Jesus is talking about in passages like that is a one-time moment of faith. And so we find uh, nobody can snatch them out of his hand. Uh, Jesus says, believe in me and you have everlasting life. Okay, so if you can lose everlasting life, it, don't call it everlasting. In that moment of belief, you have life that will never end. It's a fascinating topic and one that I would suggest if any of you are mushy on, go to God's word and study this out. This is a foundational concept, okay, and one that we embrace uh, certainly uh, around here. So, so these people have decided to distance themselves. In, in addition, not only are they not in danger of losing their salvation, uh, they're not false professors, as some would suggest. By that, I, now certainly there are people that say they're Christians that aren't, but many try to look, uh, read into the book of Hebrews and suggest that these people being warned are actually not Christians at all. They're false professors, people that are pretending to be uh, Christians. And I, and I think we just settled this dispute by acknowledging that real Christians sometimes behave very badly. Do you know some? In fact, they behave badly enough to embrace unbelief, as we'll discover more today. So in part one last week, we looked at the first of five warnings. Essentially, I could summarize it like this. Pay attention so that you don't drift away from Jesus. That's where we, where we landed. And if you need to go catch up, you can do that. You can join us online and, and take a look at last week's message. So you will face... Uh, present discipline from God, and you will face the loss of future reward. So today we're looking at the second warning in this, in this five-part series, a warning each week. Isn't that great? Come to church. You get a warning each week, all right? <laughs> so today the second warning is found in Hebrews 3 and 4. It's the longest of the warnings. Okay, so I'll try to be as clear as possible as we walk our way through this. In chapter 1, we discover that Jesus, as the author reminds us, is superior to the angels, these people had a bit of a fixation on angels. And angels are pretty cool, by the way. What are angels? They are created beings. They are spirit beings. They're angels in this space right now. Okay? So Jesus is superior to the angels. He'll begin in chapter 3 by suggesting now that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was like a great guy, especially for people with Jewish background. So he's writing to these Hebrew, these Jewish Christians, and he's saying, listen, I know you think Moses is all that, and he's a pretty cool guy, but Jesus is greater than Moses. So Mo Moses built the tabernacle in the wilderness, he'll say in the first few verses. Jesus is the guy that gave him the plans. 
That's how much better Jesus is, okay? So again, pointing back to the superiority of Jesus. Now we're going to discover here as we begin that the, uh, the writer to Hebrews is pulling from lots of different psalms, and the one he's focusing on here is from Psalm 95. So let's start together. Hebrews chapter 3. Hopefully you brought a Bible. This will make a lot more sense to you. And I want to start at verse 7. The second of the five warnings. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, proved me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath that, th that uh, they shall not enter my rest. Now, there's a lot here that I want to uh, unpack as we move through this. And there are other verses that I want to uh, share with you. But let's just take a look at some of these words that get highlighted here. For example, he says, don't harden your heart. Now, if we back up and we keep in mind that we're writing to Christians we're writing to these people who have a Jewish background, but who have placed their faith in Jesus. He says, don't harden your hearts, which tells us a Christian can. Don't, don't, don't be associated with the rebellion. We're going to unpack that in a minute. Don't test me. Don't prove me, he says. God, in fact, here is saying he was angry with these people. They always go astray. And in fact, uh, they shall not enter his rest. He describes. So these verses in Hebrews are actually a quotation out of Psalm 95, as I mentioned earlier, which is a description of the unbelief of the Israelites. So what unbelief are we talking about? Well, remember, the children of Israel had been enslaved 400 plus years in Egypt. God sends a deliverer in the person of Moses and says, we're getting you guys out of slavery. You have become my people. You're my people. And I'm leading you to a land that I've promised. It's going to be your land. You're going to enter that land. You're going to possess it. You're going to inherit that land. And so miraculously, you know the stories, maybe God moves those people uh, out of Egypt and they begin on their journey to the land that God has has uh, promised to them. And so they're miraculously freed from that slavery and that bondage. And now they stood on the threshold of entering the land that God had promised them. They're so close. If you look at a map in the Sinai Peninsula right there, uh, they're, they're so uh, close. And the base for this final push to possess the land was called Kadesh Barnea. Okay, if you look at a map, some Bibles have maps in the back. You can look that up. And in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, we find this story. You might remember that the Israelites at, from Kadesh Barnea, moving toward the land, sent out 12 spies to scope out the land. What land? The land that God had promised to them. Okay, so these 12 spies go and they check out this land. They, they brought back grapes and pomegranates and figs. There's, there's one passage that says the grapes were so enormous in bunches, the guys had to string them together on a pole and carry them between two people, right? Okay, so that's pretty good fruit there. But these people came back that spied out the land and said, but the people are strong. Yeah, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. That's where that phrase comes from. It's a land that flows with milk and honey, which means abundance and just, you know, sustains life. So, but the people are strong and the cities are fortified. And it's like, how can I say it? They would say, it's like they are giants and we are grasshoppers. Now, if, if you did the math there just on the scale, we got to call that a little bit of an exaggeration. But this is how they felt. The people that occupy this land are like huge and we're like little, okay? So 10 of the spies, 10 of the 12 spies that went out came back and said, no way, there's no way we can enter this land and possess this land. Two of the spies, 
You know them? Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. Because God has promised us this land. So the ten spies didn't believe God. Because God had already said the land is yours. The two spies did. Joshua and Caleb. We can do this. We can take this land that God has given us. In fact, they, they give their speech. Don't rebel against the Lord. He is with us. And the passage says in, uh, in Numbers 13 and 14 that the people, the Israelites, wanted to stone them. So when you get a bad report and you get somebody trying to urge you to trust God and believe what God has already said, there are a lot of people that just want to kill those kind of people. Okay, and, it, and it's happened throughout history, actually. So Kadesh Barnea was meant to be a stepping stone and instead it became a stumbling block. It was meant to be a stepping stone into the land that God had already promised. But something went way off the rails at Kadesh Barnea. The people embraced. Instead, they became people of unbelief. It was an excuse for unbelief and it caused a delay of 40 years. They were so close. So close. That's why we just read in Hebrews 3, 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now we know what he's referring to. This is the rebellion that he's referring to in the day of trial in the wilderness. There it is at Kadesh Barnea. But we discover uh, actually in Numbers chapter 14 that God had already pardoned his rebellious children. Moses went to God and said, oh, God, they're so sorry. Let me intercede for them. And God pardoned. God forgave the unbelief and the rebellion of the children of Israel. That's what the Bible says here. But but these people would also not inherit the land. Okay, so keep that tension uh, in your mind, because it would be a mistake to suggest that the children of Israel were unregenerate or were not saved, or not redeemed, okay? That they were just a bunch of unbelievers. That's not the case. The entire adult population was forbidden from entering the land. In his commentary on Hebrews, I like the way Keith Yates has reminded us of this. He reminds us that the Israelites were redeemed. They were redeemed from Egypt. They had the blood of the Passover lamb applied to their doors. They ate the Passover meal. They were brought through the Red Sea. They ate the spiritual food, which Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about. And God told Pharaoh through, through Moses that, that these people were his son. That's what he said. That's how he described the children of Israel. And God forgave their rebellion. But there were consequences. There were consequences to that rebellion. So I have a soft spot in my life for kids, I mean, especially kids that are related to me. All right, let's just be honest, right? You know, I, I can remember, especially now that I'm a grandparent, you know, you, you look back on how you parented your kids and now you have grandparents. And I have to say, I, 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 was, I was a lot harder, tougher on my own kids than my grandkids. So those of you that have young kids, you know how it works. I mean, we had our first kid, it was like, wow, what a gift, what an incredible thing, right? And so, you know, when they're doing the pacifier thing, they're sucking the pacifier. That pacifier ends up coming out of that kid's mouth, hits the floor. What do you do, kid number one? You want to immediately boil that pacifier. That's what you do. Kid number two comes along. Pacifier out of the mouth, hits the floor. You lick it off and stick it back in their mouth. That's what you do. Kid number three, you know what you do? You pick it up yourself. <laughs> you pick it up yourself. And so when I think about sort of how I parented and now that I have grandkids, man, oh man, I mean, you know, you give them a toy and you say, okay, now be careful with it, have fun with it. But they break it and everything within me just says, well, okay, let's, let's get a new one. Okay. 
Or, you know, you, you get that ice cream cone and, you know, okay, now be, be very careful. That's a lot. Okay, kind of top heavy. And then, you know, you walk away from the place and then <laughs> there it is right there on the ground. What do you do? Well, I could sit there and go, maybe I did with my kids. Too bad. Look at all the other kids. They're enjoying theirs. Too bad. You dropped yours. But well, I'll go get back in line. I'll get, I'll get another ice cream cone. So about a month ago, I was in Colorado where our three grandsons live. And the, our youngest uh, grandkid, Knox, who uh, turns five this month, so uh, I had several days with him just just checking it out. And, and you need you need to know, man, when I'm with my grandkids, I'm like uh, I'm like a different person. So so we went to Ace Hardware. Why? Why did we go to Ace Hardware? Not because we need anything, because there's cool stuff in there. <laughs> so we just went to every bin. We pulled out nuts and bolts and all that. Then we went to the grocery store because we needed groceries. Absolutely not. We need to see what was on every aisle. You ever played hide and seek with a kid in a grocery store? It's really cool. OK. And so I took I took um, Knox out for lunch. So we go in this cool little sandwich shop, you know, the kind that writes the menu with chalk on the on the board. And and uh, I said, what do you want? He said, I don't know. So it's up to me now to suggest. OK, so so how about a turkey sandwich? Yeah. Oh, look, Knox, they have mac and cheese. But before we had even gotten to the counter to order, we had passed the dessert case. And he had gotten focused. On a baby Yoda cookie. I mean, it was awesome looking. Like they, they had it down. Wow, that's like Baby Yoda. Okay, all right, Knox, once we eat, I'll get you the Baby Yoda cookie. And so we get our food, we sit down, and uh, he says, I, 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 don't, I don't like turkey. <laughs> okay, and this, and, this, and this mac and cheese doesn't taste good. And he says, he says Pop, they call me Papio. So Papio, can I have some of your salad? Okay, here we go. So sure. So he spills his water. And we're fine. He gets through some of that. Did, did he eat like I wanted him to? Absolutely not. And so we left the store after he ate the baby Yoda cookie. Okay. <laughs> now, now, now here's, I don't know if you thought much about how this works with God, but do you realize that not even Moses entered the promised land? You know Why? He hit a rock with a stick instead of speaking to it because he had already hit the rock with a stick. Now, when I look at that, I go like, God, come on. Maybe if Moses just said, I'm so sorry. OK, God, say to Moses, say sorry. <laughs> no. There were huge ramifications for that because of Moses disobedience. So using Kadesh Barnea as an example, the writer of Hebrews continues the warning. You ready? Let's skip to verse 12. Beware, brethren, brothers, sisters, Christians. That's what he's talking about. Beware, brethren, lest, in, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But encourage one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So he's come out of this story using Psalm 95. He's described this wilderness debacle, this rebellion, this, this unbelief. And then he says to those that he's writing to, these Jewish Christians, and hold, hey guys, by the way, Make sure there's not an evil heart of unbelief in any of you. And I would say to you and to me, how are we doing there? 
Make sure there's not an evil heart of unbelief in any of us in departing from the living God. Now, remember, Hebrews is addressed to Christians. And so this warning is to Christians. Before Jesus appeared on the scene, his cousin, six months apart, John the Baptist, would be the forerunner of Christ. And remember, it was John the Baptist who saw Jesus coming one day and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He also said of Jesus, you know, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie this guy's straps on his sandals. And he would go on to say, he, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. Okay, John had a really firm grasp about the identity of Jesus. But in prison, toward the end of his life, John sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. And you know what his question is about Jesus? He says, hey guys, would you, would you just ask him... <laughs> Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, who proclaimed this incredible truth about the identity of Jesus, is now a person of doubt. John the Baptist. So any of us that are struggling with doubt, we're in good company. We don't know how it played out for John the Baptist. Obviously, he's in heaven. That's not what is at stake here. We don't know if he died in doubt or if those... Those brought the news back saying, you know, Jesus told them, say, tell, tell John, this is what's happening. Lame or walking, blind or seeing, all that. Maybe that was enough for John to say, okay, 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 I remember now. He's the one. Yeah. So we're not talking about the loss of salvation here. I feel like I need to keep beating this drum, mostly because it's a popular interpretation for Hebrews. In fact, Romans eleven twenty nine 29 puts it this way. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable along with lots of other passages some I've, uh, I've already quoted to you, okay? So th there could be, verse 12, an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. That's possible. It's possible for a Christian. You know the word there, um, evil heart departing, the word departing is the word for apostasy. Like a, a total letting go uh, of Jesus, Verse 13, therefore, we're to encourage one another daily while it's called today. That's just a fancy way of saying why you still have a chance. All right. Notice the importance of the role that we play in each other's lives when it comes to this this uh, letting go of the grip of Christ. OK, departing from God. What, what does he say? One of the remedies is we get around each other. and We go, oh, OK, now, look, I know it's tough, but we encourage while we still have time. OK, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Again, we're talking to Christians. Can Christians be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin? Hang around and I'll give you a hundred stories. Of course, when I read a verse like this, I think about, you know, when you do like work in the yard and stuff with a shovel or whatever, you get calluses on your hand or you work out in the gym. These little pads right here, like where your fingers join your hands. OK, so that's the picture that I get when we talk about hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Right. It's that constant wearing over time. And now all of a sudden I, I can't feel on that callus what I can feel in the middle of my palm because it's been hardened. And our consciences work the same way. Our view of sin works, works the same way. Pretty soon we don't recognize it anymore. For we, he's including himself, by the way, we have become partakers of Christ if, if 
we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, this is the kind of verse that a person looks at and says, you've got to persevere behaving yourself to the end of life, or this proves you weren't a Christian at all. Nonsense. The word partakers is very specific, and this is a conditional promise. By the way, salvation is unconditional. You don't behave yourself into heaven. But now we're talking about behaving ourselves. This is the Greek word metakoi. It's the third time it's mentioned here in Hebrews. And he's going to hammer this theme. It means partner or companion. Okay? So this is a hint toward receiving the inheritance in the land. That's the metaphor. But for the Christian receiving the inheritance, the co-reign, co-ruling with Jesus Christ. So unlike our salvation, ruling with Christ is conditioned on continued faithfulness. If, if you're faithful. Let me summarize it like this, because some, some of this is like is awesome. But I realize it's a couple of levels down for some of you. Any of us can fall into the sin of unbelief. Just stop right there. Any of us. Like if you're walking around going, not me. I'm immune to that because I'm a Christian and Christians don't do that. Good grief. All right. So any of us can fall into the sin of unbelief. We need each other for encouragement. We just saw that in the verse. And if we hope to inherit the future blessings of co-ruling with Christ as a partner, metakoi, companion, we must maintain our faithful confidence and obedience. That's as simple as it gets. Okay. So every Christian will be with Jesus forever, but not every Christian will be rewarded with the privilege of ruling with Jesus as a companion. All right. So we're going to unpack this. This is what Hebrews is all about. So if this is sort of a fuzzy concept, hang on, come back the next three weeks. All right. So Jesus told a parable illustrating a point one time. It's the parable of the Minas. All right. This is Luke um, chapter 19. Uh, very similar to the parable of the talents, but with some significant differences. He says there were 10 servants. The master went away, by the way. It was Jesus in the parable. The master went away and the master entrusted, uh, Amina is a uh, measure of money, with his servants. Okay, 10 servants, each got Amina. Then the master returns and the first one comes and says, you know, master, I took your Amina. This is Luke uh, 19, uh, 16. And he said, master, your Amina has earned 10 minas. And the master, Jesus said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful and in, in, in a very little have authority over 10 cities. Now we're beginning to talk about the inheritance, future inheritance ruling with Jesus. A second one came and earned five minas. He took his mina and he earned five minas. And the master says to them, you rule over five cities. Now, this this is an awesome description. We're talking cities here. We're talking about co-ruling with Jesus. It's, a, it's an awesome concept uh, that I don't want to be fuzzy uh, for you. Put another way, when we look at Hebrews, to rule with Jesus is associated with the rest of Jesus. Okay, let's unpack this. Just as the Israelites were promised rest in the land, so too the believer is promised rest. But it is a conditional promise. Okay, so if you've got a Bible open again, we don't have time to go through every verse in these two chapters. You do that on your own. Let's go to chapter four now. All right. Verse one of chapter four. Ready? Still part of this second of five warnings. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. All right. So just to review, the author's writing to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. He's writing to Christians. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. 
A promise of what? Well, the promise of entering his rest. Let, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In other words, believer, he's writing to believers. You can miss this rest. Don't come short of it, he's saying. Skip down to verse 11. Let us therefore, us, himself included, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. He's including himself, and he's saying, let's be diligent to enter that rest so that we don't fall by the same example of disobedience. What same example? The example of the Israelites. Their rebellion in the, in the wilderness, he, he goes on to say. So they were to make every effort to enter that rest. Can I just pause here? You don't get salvation through personal effort. He's not talking about getting saved and going to heaven. He's talking about being a Christian of diligence, putting forth the effort in cooperation with God's spirit working in you to, to move toward this rest that God has promised. So God told the entire population of the, the adult population of the Israelites that they had forfeited entering his rest because of their unbelief, but they did not forfeit their eternal destiny. Those two are separate. Can we separate those for a minute? On the contrary, Exodus 14 and 15 tell us that the people, quote, feared and believed the Lord. And, and, uh, and quote, they were redeemed, uh, Exodus 15, 13. The analogy of the promised land is a beautiful picture, but what does it picture? Okay, you guys are awesome. I can tell you're hanging with me. We're kind of dipping in the ladle here, right? We want a couple of low levels, levels below here, but you're, I appreciate your attentiveness. What does that mean? The promised land. It's a beautiful picture. The promised land, in spite of whatever songs you've heard, is not a metaphor for heaven. It's a picture of rest. The privileged position of partnership with Jesus given to believers as a reward for obedience is conditioned upon their behavior. So this idea is captured in passages like Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. To him who overcomes, I've spoken to you here about the overcomer. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. We're talking about co-reigning with Jesus Christ. Who co-reigns with Jesus Christ? Faithful believers. Who doesn't co-reign with Jesus Christ? Unfaithful believers. They don't lose their salvation. They're there. They're in heaven. So just as he did in the very beginning of this letter, the author of Hebrews now points again to Jesus. By the way, Jesus is all over Hebrews. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I think it is too. Let's look at Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. All right? We've already established he's writing to believers. Who is their high priest? Jesus. The incredible high priest of Jesus who's passed through the heavens. He's already gone. He's resurrected. He's there waiting for us and waiting to come back. The Son of God. So because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is, hang on, guys. Hold fast our Confession. Now, why would God have to tell a believer to hold fast their confession? Because they may not. So the people that are receiving this letter for the very first time, and you, 
and I who are reading it, sometimes for the first time, we're confronted with the reality that we can loosen our grip on Jesus and return to whatever that easy thing is in our life. And he says, don't do that, hold fast. So as important as it is, a relationship with Jesus is not only about getting to heaven. We know this, right? Heaven's awesome, looking forward to it. Great assurance, incredible. That's free. You don't diligently work your way to heaven. You don't try harder to receive this gift that is offered to us. It's free. It, it is amazing. But Jesus is describing something different here. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding us something different. These people are already Christians. They can't become Christians again. He says, you guys are going to heaven. That's awesome. Now let's talk about living right now. Living right now for Jesus. And here's what it looks like. Jesus wants you as a friend, a partner, a companion, an obedient and enthusiastic advocate of everything he stands for not because he needs you but because you need him and I need him and he is willing to reward you for that faithfulness when you see him that's what we're talking about here so given the examples in the bible it's not improbable that every believer would be faced with the temptation in thought word or deed to drift away from Jesus. Can I just go on record and saying I've felt that temptation? There's a lot of stuff that's easier than pursuing Jesus as a disciple. If, if we're about easy, okay? The examples are all over the place. So our church's statement of beliefs highlights the biblical reality that you cannot lose your salvation. That is an incredible gift. And people, even Christians, who hold it over the heads of Christians, somehow dangling this fear of hell to get them to shape up, do not understand grace. Very simply put. Grace is incredible. Like with grace, God, God just lays himself out there. Grace can be abused, even God's grace. Did you know that? And so God holds believers accountable, but he doesn't hold us accountable by threatening us with hell. That deal's done. That contract is inked. Okay? You can have the assurance of your salvation. Well, what if I do some bad things? Welcome to the world. Okay? Doing good things doesn't get you to heaven, but doing good things does get you reward. And it does get you co-reignership with Christ. Remember that verse we just looked at? Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Next verse after that. We don't have a high priest that can, cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Okay, so he's just said, guys, hold on. Like he's not coming at you like he's saying, OK, hold on. I want you to hold on. Now, let me tell you how I've resourced you. It's Jesus. We don't have a high priest. I know it's hard. I know you're tempted. I know that. But listen, let me tell you about a high priest. We don't have, have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted just like you yet without sin. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. That's pretty cool. And then he goes on to finish this section with just an incredible reminder. Here's what he says, verse 16. Let us therefore, because we have Jesus, because we're tempted to let go of our confession, let us therefore come boldly 
to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. There it is again. So what does he say? Guys, I understand. Guy, I know, I know you want to loosen your grip on Jesus. I get it. And go back here. It's a poor substitute. You're making a bad decision. Let me tell you, Jesus is here for you. He understands. He knows what you're going through because he went through it. Okay? Therefore, you can come to him. You can enter that. You don't have to hang your head, crawl. You can just say, God, I thank you because of Christ. I can come into your presence boldly. The throne of grace. What do you get from the throne of grace? Grace. That's what we need. Okay? So I'm going to close by inviting us each to do something. All right? I, I want to invite each of us to ask God to reveal to you any area of unbelief in your life. And if you're one of those folks that's sitting here and you're going, wow, these people look really nice and put together. Am I the only one with an area of unbelief? Let me tell you about all these other people around you, okay? We all struggle with this. We all have unbelief. Ask God to reveal to you any area of unbelief, okay? And unbelief is like really insipid. It's crafty. For example, unbelief sometimes masquerades as self-confidence or comparison. Unbelief sometimes hides behind cynicism or worry or fear. Unbelief often hides behind emotional deadness. And unbelief hides all the time around the need to control. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to close in prayer. And you ask God. This is you and God. I, I, I did this exercise. You, you, know, you know where my unbelief surfaced? A fear of the future. That's unbelief. It's not belief. God's promised to be with me. He's promised to take care of me. He's promised to be right there with me in every circumstance. Okay? So what is it for you? Where's your area of unbelief? And if you got more than one, God can handle all that too. All right? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that you are a good God. And that when your children go astray, it breaks your heart. And your love flows over us, but, but it is a love that acknowledges that our sin has consequences. Our disobedience can't be ignored. God, would you reveal to each of us whatever area of unbelief we are embracing? Would you help us, God, to, to name it for what it is? And as you do that, oh God, how we, how we say to you how sorry we are. In your word we just saw today, you called it an evil heart of unbelief. Because unbelief is evil. Would you help us in your power to be people who can move beyond whatever unbelief we are embracing and to celebrate your goodness and your power 
with the hope and joy of not only going to heaven, but sharing eternity as your partner, companion, co-ruler. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.